I think that Matt ever. is both shallow and maybe the most brilliant person very, I know. Very like, shallow. It's, Matt yields Occam's razor like the scythe of righteousness. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, with me today, we have uh, Dara Lind and, and Herman Lopez. And I, I wanted to talk about, about the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, which um, Donald Trump has taken to saying is in tatters. And we have a sort of an increasing number of congressional Republicans who, at, at one point, I mean, a, a few months ago, when James Comey was fired and there was a big explosion about this, I think the way Republicans on the Hill sort of made themselves okay with it was they said, Bob Mueller is a great guy. We love Bob Mueller. George W. Bush appointed him. He was reappointed by Barack Obama, and we applauded that. We think he's amazing. Um, special counsel is going to handle it. And then, you know, Christopher Ray came in and, you know, he's like a well-qualified guy. And everybody said at the hearings, like, the independence of the FBI is important. And so it's all good. But then as the investigation has continued, and we don't know what will come out of it, but it's clear this has not led to like a like a quick exoneration of Donald Trump, say, Um more and more of them are 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 speaking up. I saw I saw Jim Johnson on TV this morning saying uh, that we want to investigate the FBI's involvement with Christopher Steele. We've had uh, allegations that it's it's inappropriate for some of the people on Mueller's team to have given campaign contributions to Democrats, uh, th- things like that. And then you know, obviously, a counter mobilization by Democrats who, on the, like the most surface level, just like they they want to see this investigation continue, so they want to have have the back uh, of the FBI, and it's it's a very different politics from where we were in like the first week of November 2016 when James Comey was public enemy number one to Hillary Clinton, and I I think. Um, Mainstream Democrats were kind of reaching into the bag of like long-standing left-wing criticisms of the FBI and and, and federal law enforcement, and it's been, I mean, it's been a kind of head-spinning for everyone, a, a really just a, a sort of a dizzying change of positions. So I think that it's kind of worth retelling the story that you just told from the perspective not of Congress, but of what we actually know about what the FBI has thought and done over the last year and change, like the reason that Democrats were skeptical of the FBI a year ago was not just that they had this historical, you know, distaste for the J. Edgar Hoover era, Pro, you know, trying to spy on Martin Luther King and get him to kill himself era of the FBI. It's that there were reports pretty pervasively that FBI field agents, particularly in the New York office, were strongly pro-Donald Trump and anti-Hillary Clinton and were working very hard to, you know, make sure that the Clinton investigation was being pursued and not forgotten. And, you know, to the point that there's pretty widespread speculation that the reason that James Comey, you know, through the bombshell of, you know, there are these new Anthony Weiner emails we have to look through a few days before the election was because he was worried that that was going to leak out uh, thanks to agents who were more hostile to Clinton than the bureau itself, facially. So by the same token by which, you know, 
Democrats looked at something in the FBI and said, gee, it looks like the personal bias of individuals here could cause an institutional behavior that we don't like. That's the reaction that Republicans appear to be having right now. And the proximate cause for that is that a senior counterintelligence agent who had been on the Clinton investigation and had then been detailed to the Mueller investigation, whose name is Peter Sturzok, the Wall Street Journal reported last week that he got suspended from the Mueller investigation over the summer because there's an investigation going on internally to the FBI about text messages making fun of Donald Trump, as far as we know, that he sent to another FBI employee who he was romantically involved with at the time. So it's like not clear whether what he did was on his own time or on bureau time. And, you know, it's an ongoing investigation and the bureau is probably going to like sort itself out that way. But the revelation that someone who had been on the Mueller investigation had said things about Donald Trump that were not very nice kind of, I think, turned the FBI in the eyes of some congressional Republicans from something that they wanted to uphold the neutrality of and pretend, you know, believe was either on their side or neutral to the same kind of deep state that they've been worried about with the intelligence community and the State Department and any other federal bureau that seems to be resisting the Trump administration. So I think it's it's worth thinking about this as something that is kind of being driven by events, even if those events are, you know, being used by each side to justify a particular narrative. I think that's true. And in fact, with congressional Republicans yesterday, when they were trying to grill uh, Christopher Ray about how the FBI is handling this and how it might have an anti-Trump bias, uh, I think it was Jim Jordan, one of the congressmen there, said um, that if you took out all the anti-Trump people at the Mueller investigation, there wouldn't be any investigators left. Like that, That's how much they've really bought into this idea that the FBI has become some sort of anti-Trump bureau, which is really different to what we've seen in prior reporting. And in fact, some current reporting still says that the FBI is generally still pretty friendly to Trump and in terms of like individuals politically. But for the recent events, it has just completely flipped and we're, we're seeing the result of that. I mean, there's a there's sort of a push and pull inside of this, right? I mean, because the, the FBI obviously is a subset of like, police in the United States. And and law enforcement is a constituency that Donald Trump uh, courted very much, that uh, Democrats, to some extent, you know, pushed away in the course of, of 2014, 2015, 2016, and that uh, Trump and, and Republicans very much kind of embraced into their coalition. But then the FBI specifically is an institution that has its own institutional identity, which was very much attacked by Comey's firing, right? I mean, there had been, leaving aside the particulars of that firing, there had just kind of been an understanding in American politics that, like, you can't fire the FBI director. I mean, I know I I talked about this with people on, on the Clinton transition team, and there was very much a sentiment among all of them that, like, in their heart of hearts, they would like to fire James Comey, and they were sure that Hillary would like to fire him too, but it was unthinkable. You know, they weren't, like, gaming it out. They were like, you just, you can't do it, right? And that's a, a an aspect of, of specialness that the FBI sort of has that makes it different from other federal agencies. And you attack that by firing the director, right? And then the Mueller investigation is just a small subset of the FBI. And naturally, you ask, like, 
well, who wants to volunteer for that? And a lot of the, particularly the, the lawyers, the prosecutors, he's uh, hired to, to work with him. You know, they're leaving lucrative uh, private sector jobs to go work on this. And you wouldn't do that unless you thought there was a case there. Right. And you wouldn't think there is a case there if you thought Donald Trump was like an amazing guy who's far, far above suspicion. And and that's like I'm something we saw in Ken Starr's investigation of Bill Clinton, right? This this push and pull where the Clinton White House people would be like, look, you have this team of like Clinton haters here. And the counterpoint is like, well, I mean, are they Clinton haters or are they people who believe the investigation is important work, which by definition you wouldn't do if you were like in the tank for Bill Clinton. And it's further complicated by the fact that it's not like Donald Trump is a guy who commands universal respect in American political circles, right? So, like, uh, one senior official at the Department of Energy, to wit, Rick Perry, once said that Donald Trump is a cancer on American conservatism, right? Right, and of course, there have been all those stories of, you know, one of the problems with appointing some of the lower level political appointees across the federal government is that Donald Trump has made it clear that if you ever said anything mean about him, you shouldn't be hired. And that's made it very difficult to hire conservative policy wonks. Right. But I mean, if you attempted to universally apply the rule that like people who never talked shit about Donald Trump can't have like any role in the American government, you like you would need to purge his own cabinet, like Senate Republicans are, like, constantly saying, like, Donald Trump, he's immature. He might cause a nuclear war. Let's go vote for his tax reform bill. And, you know, liberals have their own views about that. But it it's paradoxical to be someone who has said and done so many ridiculous things and has prompted so much negative commentary from so many people then creates this, like, list you can use to, like, selectively go down and say, like, oh, no, we got to veto him, we got to veto him. Like, is there anyone really in America who has, like, never rolled their eyes at some crazy thing Trump said and, like, texted a friend? Like, I can't believe he said that. Yeah, there's, I feel like we're going to spend the rest of this episode just, like, pulling out various things (laughs) um, that you've just hit on. But I feel like something we're talking around and I want us to be really explicitly clear about is that there are two different levels on which we're talking about the FBI. And one of them is this kind of, what are the personal feelings of the agents and how is that affecting their work? And, you know, can you be political on your own time and be neutral in your job? And the other one is the institutional behavior of the FBI, right? The, like, the classic things that liberals tended to dislike about it, the, you know, the institution of the special counsel in that investigation. And I think that there, you know, the relationship between the two is obviously very important, but it's kind of useful, especially because the FBI does have this unique institutional culture uh, to separate the two of those things. When we're talking about, you know, the FBI as an institution, it's important to understand that it's at the center of a Venn diagram whose two circles tend to invoke very different feelings on each side of the aisle, right? In one circle, it is a law enforcement agency and... Democrats and progressives have been very skeptical of, you know, especially in in the current, you know, over the last several years, there's been a lot more skepticism of particularly law enforcement field agents, of, you know, unchecked aggression against over-policed communities, of over-surveillance, that kind of thing. On the other hand, though, they're a member of not just the civil service, but the federal government civil service. And that is something that 
Democrats have been defending the, you know, as a workforce for a very long time, while Republicans have been skeptical of the utility of having such a large federal government with so many people working for it, and often skeptical of the motives of the people who are doing that work. So, you know, the the reason that it's so easy for the House Republicans to be asking about the political beliefs of members of the FBI is that they're entirely primed to believe that most federal employees are closet Clintonites, uh, that, you know, the entire EPA is staffed with people who are trying to undermine Scott Pruitt, which... That's probably true. It's probably though. true, right? Um, so because the FBI is at the center of that Venn diagram, it's something where feelings tend to be a little bit more complicated and ambivalent. And depending on the way it's being framed, not just depending on, you know, which side the FBI is going after, but whether you're thinking of the FBI as a law enforcement agency or as an important federal government check on power, that's going to, you know, to a certain extent, prime how people are thinking about it. Okay, let's just take a break, dive into that. If you're looking for dependable political reporting, high-quality storytelling, or the latest on culture and entertainment, magazines are really where it's at. I mean, they've got high-quality writing, beautiful photography, and now you can get all your magazines in one place with the Texture app. It lets you get all the goodness of magazines. They've got over 200 premium titles in there, including, uh, you know, The Atlantic, Time, The New Yorker, Vanity Fair, Wired. And right now you can try Texture for free. Uh, so, so what is it? It is way better than print. For one thing, it means you're not going to have just like a million old copies of magazines piling up on your coffee table. Uh, you get to see, you know, what you want, when you want it, on your smartphone, on your tablet, uh, with incredible convenience. If you're like any kind of normal person, you carry your phone around with you everywhere. But with Texture, your phone carries with it hundreds of magazines. So just imagine, like, all your favorite magazines, all their back issues, anytime, anywhere. To start your Texture free trial, go to texture.com slash weeds. Uh, if you choose to continue, podcast listeners will get Texture for just $9.99 a month. It's over 30% off their listed price, and it's like, it's frankly an amazing bargain compared to a print subscription. Uh, there's also great gift options available for the holiday season. So go to texture.com slash weeds to start your free trial today. That's texture.com slash weeds, texture.com slash weeds. Before these hearings happened, you know, I I, I follow you on Twitter, Herman, and, and I saw you retweet uh, Gabriella Paella, uh, I don't know how to say her name. Um, <laughs> it's embarrassing. Um, but anyway, so so she wrote, liberals defending the FBI just because Trump insulted it are doing a great job of showing how shallow their politics are. And and that that was sort of what inspired me to think about this topic because I, on the one hand, I, I sort of agree. On the other hand, I, I kind of like, I, I resemble that remark. And I my, my instinct is definitely to say, Donald Trump is trying to tear down the FBI, so I'm going to defend it for just that reason. Um, so, you know, I mean, how, how shallow am I? Uh, well, Matt, I don't think you're shallow. I like Thank you. you. But um, in terms <laughs> I like of, Matt, but he's super shallow. Okay, well, the, the <laughs> opinions differ. But um, basically what I was thinking with that is that it's just, I mean, we've gone through this already, but like a year ago, opinions were very flipped on the FBI. And I think it was for a good reason. I still think that, and I'm sure like plenty of people agree, that Comey's handling of how he went out there uh, started going off about how Clinton was extremely careless, even though no prosecutor would pursue her case. I mean, 
that is not the role of the FBI director. The role of the FBI director is to, it's just a law enforcement agency. He's not supposed to be going out there giving political advice to Hillary Clinton on how she's handling her emails. He can think that it was extremely careless. That's great. But he shouldn't be saying that as the director of the FBI. And I, I think plenty of liberals leading up to like the release of Comey's letter right before the election and whatnot would agree with that. And now we're seeing this total flip just because Trump has said that the FBI's reputation is in tatters. And to me, it's like, I think the FBI's reputation should kind of be in tatters because they've almost historically, for most of their existence, they've been a bad institution in a lot of ways. They've, uh, I mean, we can go to the J. Edgar Hoover stuff, but like he this is an institution that literally tried to get Martin Luther King, who most people would consider a great American, they tried to get him to kill himself by blackmailing him. And th- it's just hard for me to imagine how an institution ever recovers its reputation from that, much less an institution that has continued doing very questionable things. I, I do think so, it, so when you say recover its reputation, I mean, are we talking about the public perception of the agent of the Bureau or are we talking about the way it works internally in, in terms of its culture? I'm saying, like, from my perspective, its reputation has been tarnished. And I think from a lot of— It's it's in tatters. Yes, it's in tatters, I would say. But, um, and I I mean, it would be one thing if the FBI just had stopped doing these kinds of things before. But there was, like, uh, after the Martin Luther King stuff. But they, like, there was just a report from Foreign Policy— that showed that the FBI is now going after black identity extremists, which seems to be a thing that they just made up because they're worried about Black Lives Matter leading to violence against police officers. So they've kind of invented this movement of violent, quote unquote, black identity extremists. And like that's the kind of thing that they were doing with civil rights advocates during the 60s, during the 70s and so on. But even even moving beyond that stuff, because that's kind of like the institutional stuff we were talking about in terms of like how the FBI works the law enforcement agency, I still go back to just how the whole Hillary Clinton investigation was handled. And just that press conference that Comey held to me was like, it, it shows that the FBI does have a problem with constantly getting involved in politics when it shouldn't. Uh, it might be in the right in this case, because it's pursuing what seems to be a serious investigation against Donald Trump. But still, I'm uncomfortable with the idea that this law enforcement agency is consistently getting embroiled in our politics. Something I I remember, and and that was definitely very much on on my mind uh, back when when the FBI was was the enemy of liberals, was a case from back in 2014 when uh, the mayor of Washington, D.C., Vince Gray, was the target of a federal corruption investigation for basically for campaign finance law violations that would not be illegal today, uh, but that were illegal at the time of the 2010 campaign. And it seemed like the kind of case where the prosecutors, law enforcement people, they, they like to make big cases. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't think they were going after Gray for, for low motives. They thought they had this great case, and they thought they were going to take the mayor down. Um, but it turned out that while they had a pretty good case against some of his aides, they never had a case that they could bring to prosecutors against Vince Gray. But instead of clearing him, what they did was about a week before the election, they leaked to the Washington Post that they were imminently going to file criminal charges. He lost the election, and then they just never filed charges because apparently they didn't have the case. And 
to me, what's really striking about this, you know, any agency, shit can happen. There's a lot of people working in the federal government. But nothing happened as a result of that. You know what I mean? There was no... Nobody said, James Comey, the director, and the other people in his office, they didn't look back at that and say, whoa, somebody really fucked this up. You can't leak to the press a week before the election that criminal charges are going to come down against the mayor of a major American city, clearly contribute to his electoral defeat, and then have it turn out to be the case that not only were you leaking, but you were just making stuff up. Like, that is a big problem. We need to get the inspector general on. You know what I mean? So nothing happened. And was it a big deal? Like, I don't know. I I think Miro Bowser's been a good mayor, but it was a egregious kind of misconduct out of a field office. And then it creates a situation where, as you were saying, Dara, right, most people believe that Comey believed that his hand was sort of being forced on some of this stuff, that he didn't want leaking out of the field offices, out of the agents. But at the same time, Comey, and as far as I can tell, all of his predecessors as director had never made an effort to clamp down on that kind of thing, to create an institutional culture in which pursuing vendettas against politicians that FBI field officers don't like would be considered inappropriate, unprofessional, the kind of thing that you would get punished for. And it's why, I mean, I sort of agree with with Herman's point. I mean, it's there's obviously a lot of partisan opportunism on this flip-flop kind of thing here, but it is 100% true that, like, the kind of thing that FBI field agents sometimes do in public integrity cases is decide they're going to bring their target down and then just wage a campaign against them in the press, through leaks, through selective use of well-timed subpoenas, things like that. And, like, there's never punishment for it. So targets of these investigations can always portray themselves as as victims. And there's been reform since the Nixon-Hoover era of some of, like, the most egregious civil liberties abuses. But I don't think there ever really has been a reform of the kind of, you know, there's a difference between, like, breaking into someone's house without a warrant and just, like, whispering things to a reporter. But but I just, I don't feel like that kind of politicization at at the agency has ever been, like, disciplined or addressed in a meaningful way. So I think that what Herman is talking about is politicization in a way that what Matt is talking about is not. Um, and to defend that, like, I I understand, Herman, that what James Comey said in 2016 was obviously, you know, being driven by politics on a whole lot of levels. I'm not sure that there was a way to avoid that, right? I think at a certain point, like, I think the Mueller investigation is a great example of this, right? Like, Bob Mueller is nobody's Democrat, um, and his team has pretty clearly to the point of, you know, suspending this dude because of text messages he sent before Donald Trump was elected, you know, without the press having known anything about it at the time. Like, they've pretty clearly tried to do their best to stay above the partisan fray. That hasn't worked. And I'm not sure that—I think it's pretty hard to say it was their fault that it hasn't worked, right? At a certain point, given where we are in 2017 and the existential threat that many people both see in Donald Trump and that Trump and his allies see in much of the rest of the federal government, um, given the kind of public platform that the FBI has, I'm not sure that a truly apolitical FBI is possible. Like, I'm trying to come up with a law enforcement agency that I think of as as politically neutral, and I'm really, really not. And I don't, however, think that that's the same thing as the 
misplaced zeal in taking down public figures. I I think that the misplaced zeal thing is a function of, you know, the FBI is a law enforcement agency and any law enforcement agency is going to have a mission of there is wrongdoing in the world and it is our mission to take it down. I don't really know that you have a successful law enforcement agency that is predicated on the idea that like sometimes things will be okay and sometimes they will not be okay and our job is to figure out which is which. Even though personally, like if I were running a department, if I if I ran the zoo, I would totally be thinking about things that way. I'm not a law enforcement agent. I'm not, I don't have that disposition. So I think that that can actually be harnessed in in a way to counteract the political or ideological beliefs that individual agents have though, right? Like if you have a very broad law enforcement mandate, which the FBI has, they're not trying to take down a particular type of bad guy. Yes, they're each division, they're focusing on a particular type of crime, but it's not that the agents all agree that there is a particular enemy of America who needs to be brought down. That's different from the institutional culture that exists at, say, ICE, which is a federal law enforcement agency that Democrats have definitely decided is not being is not doing very good work. It's different even from many individual police departments where, you know, there might be a big local crime problem or something like that that's going to create a stereotypical idea of who is the bad guy we're trying to get. The FBI, because it doesn't have that, or because the agents who are being recruited in don't have this idea of like, this is the sort of person I'm going after, it can create, can use the like zeal of taking down wrongdoing wherever found to turn it into a professionalism, right? That like, we are going to go about things the right way procedurally to make sure that you know, all the boxes are being checked because we want to make sure that when we take someone down, that they don't get off on a quote unquote technicality, which is another word for the Bill of Rights. Um, like the more, you know, if if you if you can turn that into a doing the right thing at the end of the day is going to require you to do your job well, that can be a really important check on personal ideology. Okay. I think we better do another break here. I've been thinking about being a better human being and giving more money to charities doing good work in the world. And luckily for me, I have a colleague, Dylan Matthews, who has done a lot of work around effective altruism and can give me very good advice about how best to spend my money. Uh, People who do not have that, but who also want to give to good charities, also have a way to maximize the good that they accomplish with each dollar that they give, because GiveWell at GiveWell.org is designed for just that. It does in-depth, detailed research and identifies evidence-backed and cost-effective programs that are helping the poorest people in the world. The reason that GiveWell is the portal that you want to be using for this is that it focuses on how much good a charity accomplishes. So how many lives are saved or how much does someone's income increase with every dollar that you give? And that's probably a better outcome to go by than, you know, easier to answer but less important questions like how much money does the CEO make or how much overhead it has. If you are a super interested charity efficacy quant wonk, you can look through the data yourself. If you only want to spend a few minutes, again, the top charities are very easily accessible on the front page of their website, and you can leverage the thousands of hours that they've put together in terms of finding the best way that you can make the most difference this year. One of the places that that Dara ended there, I I, I do think is right, which is that if we think about how in tatters is the FBI's reputation, or should it be, one place where it really shouldn't be is that they're they're pretty good at their jobs. You know, like they they investigate 
complicated offenses. They make good cases. We don't have a lot of corruption complaints or, or other kinds of things that, that tend to come up. They seem to have be a, be a relatively high-functioning agency, right? Which is something that we sometimes lack in America. I mean, not just in, in the law enforcement sectors, but different branches of the federal government are either they're weak, you know, and can be easily trampled on by political appointees. Like, I think we have real doubts as to whether the financial regulators are going to effectively regulate the financial system when the top political appointees there sort of don't want them to. Whereas it has always been the case that, like, the FBI isn't going to not do a public integrity case against the mayor of Cincinnati because of narrow partisan politics in, in Washington, right? I mean, I mean, th- things happen, but I mean, it, it does function reasonably well. And sometimes, you know, politicians of all parties get into conflicts with this, right? I mean, you, you mentioned ICE, right? And obviously a big issue in, in the sort of middle of the Obama years was that the ICE agency operated too well from the perspective of the White House, you know, which kind of wanted to be able to, like, gently put out a memo being like, maybe don't do things that make immigration activists so mad at me. And that didn't work, right? He he, he eventually had to get into a sort of, like, an escalating bureaucratic conflict that was not, it, it neither produced, like, the results in terms of protecting immigrants from deportation, nor the results in terms of, like, quietly making a political problem go away. They had an incredible esprit de corps that, you know, was going to go after the people they wanted to go after and not just kind of take orders from from the West Wing. And, you know, depending on, the, on your views of immigration, I mean, you may find that to be a bad outcome, but there's something to the view that that's how the federal government is supposed to operate. I mean, the thing about the ICE conflict during the Obama years is that, yeah, everybody knew that this was a political you know, and policy goal of the Obama administration. But the memos that were being ignored weren't coming from the White House. They were coming from the director of ICE himself. And like when you have memos that are saying, please deprioritize the following categories of individuals, and then heads of field offices are saying, yeah, but you didn't say we had to. Like that's not exactly the bureaucratic situation that you want. You you want a situation where people don't feel that they're being kept from doing their jobs, which is the way that ICE agents have tended to feel about any strategy that is not go after as many people as possible as quickly as possible, but where you still have a certain amount of central flexibility to like make strategic choices about resources, which I think is what the Obama administration thought they were doing in like dialing back certain sorts of resources so that they could expend more resources elsewhere. And if you have a situation where you can't make those strategic decisions, you have something like I don't know where ICE is right now, where it's not at all clear that if there were a need to do really targeted, high-level gang operations, that there would be an, a willingness to dial back day-to-day street enforcement in order to create the space for that to happen. One thing you mentioned earlier is that uh, there's no agency that's going to be apolitical. And I think that's obviously true. Like every, every single agency is going to be affected by its politics in some way. But I think in terms of the FBI, what I think with particularly the Comey press conference going back on that is like he could lead by example. And I just don't think he really did that last year. Like he could be signaling to his agents, hey, this is how we act as the FBI. And the way he handled the entire Clinton investigation from just making the extremely careless remarks and like 
And but he said extremely careless, not that his remarks were extremely careless. I mean, although, you are saying his so remarks although, were extremely Although they careless. were, yes. Uh, the, but, like, he didn't. And, in fact, he had so little faith as an institution that he, the reason he released that letter bef- right before the election is because he thought that it was going to be leaked. And that, to me, just, like, signals that like, there's something wrong with the FBI here and we should be thinking about how to make that better and how to fix that. And another thing is that we talked about how like law enforcement agencies have lots of zeal. They're going to pursue their cases as stringently as possible. And, you know, we see this with law enforcement all over the country, but maybe it would be better if they calmed down a little and had some more checks in place. Like, I still want law enforcement going after criminals like a very stringent, good way, but like there has Do to be. You, a, though? I mean, to to some, in a <laughs> it more, depends how you define criminals. Yes. This is always <laughs> yes. It, it depends on how you define criminals, and what I would like to see is that they're more targeted, right? Instead mm-hmm. of just like doing these dragnet sweeps in minority neighborhoods and whatever. But like, it, it seems to me like there just aren't enough checks on law enforcement. Not not even just these investigations, these politically political investigations or corruption investigations, but just in general, somebody there should probably be telling them to do, hey, it like relax. We we this is over. There's no evidence here. Blah blah blah. Maybe it's time to move on. So uh, Tim Tim Weiner uh, is a, a great journalist, and his his book on on the CIA uh, Legacy of Ashes is, is very well known. Uh, his his book on the FBI called Enemies, I think, has never been quite as prominent. Uh, but one of the interesting points he makes about the FBI as an institution is that in big cities normally just have like a police department, right, which then has different kinds of squads. Uh, the federal government has a lot of very highly specialized agencies, right? So you have ICE and they like they do immigration enforcement and you have the DEA and like you can never convince the DEA that like maybe drugs aren't such a big deal because it's like it's right there in their name, right? But then the FBI is there as this like somewhat generic uh, federal law enforcement agency, but they have a piece of the national security puzzle, right, where they have a counterintelligence and a counterterrorism mandate. And and one of Wiener's big points is that owning that counterintelligence mandate has always been sort of like like the crown jewels of the FBI. It's like more prestigious to be a national security agency than to be a law enforcement agency. And and he he writes about how that's always had this sort of distorting influence on the Bureau's own kinds of politics and that it, it leads to, you know, wanting to get more and more involved in activities where you are less restrained, right? The thing about any kind of law enforcement is that ultimately, if you're doing investigative law enforcement work, you have to bring cases to court. And that's like a kind of a check on you. When you're doing counterintelligence, you don't necessarily need to bring cases to court. You're in a kind of more like a security policing dynamic, but with like very abstract, highfalutin goals. So if you can say, right, I mean, you you brought this up before, if you can say, okay, there's a problem of black identity extremists, and then we need to infiltrate, you know, anti-police protest organizations and then disrupt them so that they can't effectively mount their nefarious anti-police violence. And then somebody else is like, what are you talking about? Like, there is no nefarious anti-police <laughs> violence. Then they can turn around and say, well, you see, 
we're being incredibly successful. We've disrupted all of these plots, right? And there's no, you really are operating this like, this very murky uh, mirror universe where like, it all depends on do you believe the initial assertion and where I think not mainstream Democrats, but like left-wing people have always had, I think, reasonable suspicion that the FBI is kind of concocts these threat environments, right? There was a lot of focus uh, after 9-11, you know, obviously on Islamic terrorist groups, and, and I think we we knew why, but also, like, memos about eco-terrorism. And, like, it's never been clear that there is eco-terrorism in the United States, but there is definitely FBI surveillance of environmental activists. Um, and that is, it's political in a, in a problematic way that, to, to me, that speaks to the to the shallowness point, right? I mean, it may or may not be the case that biased agents are being recruited into Bob Mueller's uh, investigation, but we know that, like, the center of gravity of the FBI over the long haul has been to just be suspicious that any kind of left-wing political act- activism is a kind of terrorist threat to the United States. I just— I keep being struck by how when we talk about the FBI, we can talk about things that happened 30 or 40 years ago and have it be like, you know, it is no one is questioning that it is the same agency in large part. And I don't think it's not that I think that's false. I do think it's true. I think it's deeply unusual for the federal government where people are often, you know, especially like prestige jobs, people are flipping out of in and out of them with some frequency, that we're talking about an incredibly, unusually robust institutional culture, right? That's how you get things like it is known that the counterintelligence division is like the crown jewel and everybody wants to go there. It's also how you get things like it being, a, you know, a, a fairly well-functioning agency regardless of who's in charge. And like a lot of that just has to do with how long people are sticking around. The Obama-era civil rights division, I think there's been a lot of concern about because we recently saw what happened when a an administration that doesn't take, doesn't believe that civil rights are an important enforcement role for the federal government comes in. The you know, Bush administration managed to deplete the attorneys who were working at the civil rights division. And so the concern is that having been built up over eight years, that's now going to happen again. The FBI doesn't have those problems because being an FBI agent is its own reward in a certain capacity. That's how you have hostility towards new trends in culture, hostility towards mass movements. You know, it's the more robust an institutional identity you have, the more likely you are to see anything outside it as something that is a potential threat. But it's also what keeps the FBI from saying, yeah, sure, President Donald Trump is our president and he doesn't want us to investigate him. So I guess we shouldn't, right? The the robustness works both ways. And there's a balance you need to strike in any law enforcement agency between, or really any public bureau, between having a robust institutional culture and being somewhat responsive to the fact that you're the, the government and you're supposed to be responsive to the will of the people, right? Like, if a president is elected who does want to, you know, ramp down the drug war, the DEA sort of is supposed to go along with that. They're not supposed to say, but we're the DEA and we love drug busts, so nothing you can do is going to tell us otherwise. But you don't want a situation where political appointees and elected officials are, you know, leading the agencies around by the nose and telling them pay no attention to that Russian behind the curtain. 
so I think that, you know, the to defend the shallow liberal defense of the FBI, this is exactly the situation in which having a robust institutional culture can be a good thing when the president and the president is saying, well, because they're investigating me, everything's going wrong there. And his own attorney general is not always as robust in saying, no, they're law enforcement. This is what they do. And I think to that you know, Director Ray, despite having been a Trump appointee, did a very good job yesterday in saying, look, these our agents are incredibly professional. You should trust us to be able to take care of our own stuff. You should not be looking too deeply into the personal biases of what my agents do. Yeah. I, I mean, in terms of that, it, it kind of makes me think like the independence of the FBI as an institution has worked two ways. On one hand, it is an independent law enforcement agency generally. Uh, and in on the other hand, that independence also lets it do things that are questionable. And acknowledging that doesn't mean that I don't want the FBI to be independent. It uh, I don't want Trump to be coming in and telling the FBI to go after Hillary and the NFL and whatever else he can make up in his mind. Um, but it, it, I think it is just worth stepping back and and saying, like, yeah, even though the president probably should not be screaming at the FBI on Twitter, and even though the FBI should remain an independent institution, there are serious problems with this agency and that we just saw one year ago. And we should keep those in mind before jumping in and praising the hell out of it and saying it's doing such a great job. Final break. You are listening to The Weeds because you're a very intelligent and curious person who's always eager to learn more about the world. We know this because we have very sophisticated data and because we're kind of full of ourselves. But we also know that sometimes you need to know more about the world than just what we can give you in 60-minute segments. So one of the ways that you can do that is to sign up for The Great Courses Plus. That gives you unlimited access to learn from some of the world's best professors about really anything that interests you. There are 8,500 lectures available on The Great Courses Plus on things like history, science, language, or, you know, stuff like how to appreciate wine or take better photos or other things that might not be as easily read in a book or heard in a, in a podcast. There's a Great Courses Plus course on the modern political tradition, which looks a lot into the way that political theorists over the last few centuries have approached the notion of how a state is best governed, examining fundamental questions like what is freedom and who has rights. If you're interested in today's podcast about the FBI in particular, I would definitely recommend checking that out. I'm a big fan of it. I would love you to experience it too. So they're giving listeners unlimited access to enjoy all of their courses free for one month. But you need to sign up with our special URL, which is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. On some level, looking at this, I think the like the most shallow reaction of all I can have, I think, has some some important truth to it, which is just that like Donald Trump is a really bad president, you know? <laughs> like Hermione, like you were saying, like you probably shouldn't be yelling at the FBI on Twitter. And like that's true, but like it's true for reasons like beyond the like specifics of the FBI situation. Just like the amount of screaming that Donald Trump does on Twitter is like it's very inappropriate. And in a weird way, I mean, I, I saw a poll yesterday and it was like among Trump supporters, like the thing that they were most likely to say gave them doubts about Trump was precisely his tweeting. And it would be stupid to say that the worst thing Trump does is bad tweets because like policy matters to millions of people's lives. But it's the most 
egregious thing that he does. It's the thing that is most like beyond the realm of, I think, reasonable disagreement about how politics should be conducted. There's like nothing you can do when the president doesn't exercise the authority of his office in like a reasonable way, you know? And it it leads to a lot of these dilemmas. I mean, I think there's been a lot of like chewing over this in, in the military when like, I think he tweeted out that he was going to have like no transgender soldiers. And then the generals were like, we're not doing that. And, you know, that was like a, a happy result, but also like, like what has become of us, right? Like you, the military is supposed to follow orders, but like our tweets even orders. And like, is that at all how you're supposed to make policy decisions? And it's like, it's like the dumbest, most shallow take I could come up with. But like, he just, he really shouldn't be president. So I, I think that, you know, you've just gotten it why tweets are policy, right? Like Trump, it's not clear whether he genuinely believes that whatever he says, the government should be scurrying to make it happen, or if he's just trying to exert, you know, the bully pulpit to speed along decisions that he wants to see. But for whatever it's worth, like, the transgender soldier thing is not the only time that he has appeared to announce a policy via Twitter. And he's certainly, you know, the FBI tweets are not the first time that he's commented about what the Department of Justice should and shouldn't be investigating. That's happening in a way that isn't being met with actual internal decision-making on the ground. It's not just that Trump isn't communicating it to, you know, others in the Oval Office. It's that Trump administration appointees, as far as I can gather, often don't have a great sense of how to get the things they want to get done, done. That they don't have enough familiarity with the federal government and with the agencies that they're working with to really direct things in any particular way. So it's worth pointing out that you could have a dystopia where that's not needed because all federal employees know that whatever the president tweets is what the president wants, and that's their job. And this kind of like Matt and I have tossed around the phrase working toward the Fuhrer in the past, which is, you know, from Nazi historiography about the extent to which it's understood it's that too there's far, a particular Dara. goal. It's no, outrageous. I think, I think it's an important inst- organizational culture <laughs> term, right? Um, so it is things like the FBI's stiff-necked sense of independence that keep agents from being from saying, oh, well, this is what the president does. Yes, we better hop to it and instead have them saying, we're going to wait until we get the memo because it doesn't matter until it comes from somebody up the org chain. Mm-hmm. And to, uh, well... Not really to Trump's credit, but in the end, <laughs> in the end, after he did tweet those things about trans mil- uh, trans people in the military, he did actually put out an order, um, which is now being held up in courts. Um, but besides that, the the other thing I was thinking about is that, to your point, like often people ha- in the administration don't seem to know what they're supposed to be doing, um, and they get some of that direction, I guess you could call it, from Trump's Twitter account. Um, which is alarming in many ways, but I think it also lets like the mo- I think the most effective person in the administration is still Jeff Sessions, and a lot of that is because he seems to just completely ignore Trump and do whatever the hell he wants. Like he'll throw him a bone every once in a while, but for the most part, he's doing what Jeff Sessions said he would have done thirty years ago in the Department of Justice, which is trying to like go after. Uh, even low-level drug offenders, not really care about voting rights enforcement, and on and on and on. Um, and that, that to me, is, like, another way that this is alarming, that this idea that, like, because Trump 
seems to think that his Twitter account is an effective means of uh, setting policy and commuting, communicating with the public. He kind of just lets his own staff not really know what they're supposed to be doing. And in the case of Jeff Sessions, this is working out great for Trump because Trump, as somebody who ran on like racist messages and really didn't like Black Lives Matter and all that stuff, loves the idea of law enforcement getting tougher on in, in all these cases. But still, it, it like... This could also be leading to another situation, which is what we're seeing in much of the rest of the administration, where it's like unclear, like, what the hell is the State Department supposed to be doing with North Korea? And why is Trump contradicting that? And so on and so forth, where it's just it's very irresponsible and the, the administration just seems to have no idea what it's doing. The other thing about the, the transmilitary ban is, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't a large legal question in that court case whether tweets are policy? Yeah, well, it's like now an open question of like, can you inter? I mean, this has come up in like the Muslim ban as well, right? Like where Trump's prior remarks is like, what exactly did he mean? Is it this this prejudice? Like, is he actually targeting trans all trans people? In this case, I think it's pretty clear he's tra- targeting trans people based on how even the White House order is built. But it's like it's definitely you've definitely seen the tweets cited in court documents and whatnot, which is a very interesting thing to see in our modern era. But generally, that's true. I think it applies better to the Muslim ban, though, where like his prior remarks and his lackeys' prior remarks are being thrown about. Right. Well, it'll be interesting to see how this comes with the uh, AT&T Time Warner litigation, right, which goes to the, the not the FBI part of the Justice Department, but, but another part of it, where, you know, the Justice Department is bringing a case against AT&T, uh, an antitrust case against their effort to merge with Time Warner. I think most people who I've talked to who work in that agency, they think it's not a they think it's a close call, you know, that it's it's not, like, obvious that any Justice Department would bring this action, but it's also not a crazy enforcement action in their view. It's, like, within the margin of discretion that people would take. But Donald Trump did not let the Justice Department do its analysis, write its brief, and then come out and endorse it and say, I think that this is really persuasive. So now I'm going to do some tweets about how we should block this merger. Instead, he was tweeting way back during the campaign that this should be blocked. He appeared to be suggesting that it should be blocked for reasons that are um, just like outside the scope of antitrust law. He then also has had a lot of just attacks on CNN, and it is going to raise the question in court of whether there has been some kind of an improper influence on the Justice Department's thinking about this. Because you can't you can't block a merger because the president doesn't like one of the merging companies' news coverage, right? Like, that's not even close to being a legitimate reason to, to, to block a merger. And like any previous administration would have – I don't want to say that nobody ever would have let a political consideration enter into a regulatory action, but they certainly would have uh, denied it. They would have tried to cover their tracks, right, in a way that Trump hasn't. And it it raises the prospect that a merger that should be blocked is going to be allowed precisely because the president was so, like, over his skis in, in efforts to to block it because it it just it, it like it wreaks havoc in the American legal system to have the president of the United States kind of meandering outside all administrative and, and legal processes. I mean I find this like a moderately heartening possible outcome, both because even though the president has been tweeting about CNN and fake news and all of that, the actual case that was, you know, 
submitted as a brief in court isn't about CNN being fake news. It's pretty clear that, you know, even not getting into the question of whether this was influenced by Trump, the actual argument being made is an argument that is within the scope of antitrust law. It is not the president doesn't like it and therefore we're going to shut it down. The actual DOJ employees appear to be, you know, doing a pretty down the line job on this. And if the courts strike it down, you know, if the courts refuse a facially strong argument because of concerns about you know, the improper appearance of what the president has done, that indicates that both the judicial branch and the kind of bureaucratic state portion of the executive branch appear to be doing their jobs pretty successfully, even though the president is doing something that is wholly beyond the pale. So that's something, I I don't know, I I feel a little warmer and fuzzier about the robustness of American institutions than I did before taping this episode. I don't know, though. I feel worse about it because in the end, uh, the whole situation will... Like, this is a good example of a case where, like, no matter what the outcome is, there's going to be questions about what the motives here were and the legitimacy of the decisions and, like, uh, whether you should trust in government. I mean, this has, like, serious effects in policy. I mean, going back to, like, the law enforcement thing, trusting law enforcement, like, trust and how much the public perceives the legitimacy of law enforcement has a serious effect on the levels of, like, crime. Like, if you don't trust that the police is going to protect you, you're going to be more likely to take matters to your own hands. And that means, like, if somebody's threatening your girlfriend, you might think, oh, okay, I'm going to shoot this person because that's how I need to deal with it since the police isn't going to. And, like, this is something we see on, like, a systemic level. Like, if if you people do not trust their government, there are lots of ways that the government unravels. So, like, regardless of the outcome of this specific case— just Trump's tweets have like fed this level of distrust and like cynicism towards what the government is doing, even in like antitrust cases that might not have been so controversial before. Um, that it it just it makes you feel sad about everything. That's and to, and to react, I'm despondent again. <laughs> <laughs> to loop this back to the FBI, right? I mean, part of how we sort of got to where where we have been for the past generation or, or so, right, is that in the Nixon administration, it turns out. You know, there's a kind of a a nice implication if you watch the movie All the President's Men or you see the kind of uh, mythos that Woodward and Bernstein sought to create about themselves that like a high-minded whistleblower helped them break the Watergate case. Uh, What we now know is that a high-ranking top lieutenant of J. Edgar Hoover's was essentially mad that when Hoover died, Nixon tried to take this rogue agency and put it under his own control. And so then Mark Felt, trying to preserve the FBI's status as a rogue agency immune from any kind of democratic oversight, decided to kind of knife Nixon. The reason he was able to do that is that Nixon was, in fact, doing tons and tons of illegal stuff. So in that sense, like ambition checked ambition in a grand Madisonian design. But the other result was that even though the Watergate hearings led to all these revelations about, like, terrible crimes that the FBI had been committing, as well as terrible crimes that Richard Nixon had been committing, sometimes crimes they'd been committing together, ultimately, like, the FBI came out of all that like, as immune from political oversight as ever before, since they'd kind of, like, won the battle, right? And and to an extent, that's, like, what's happening. Again, it's like you have a president who is potentially, like, corrupting everything he touches, but then the means that may bring him down have more to do with, seemingly more to do with, like, bureaucratic 
politics. I don't want to say the facts are irrelevant because, again, I mean, like, the the reason Deep Throat was able to take Nixon down is that Watergate was real. Uh, but it's not it's not as nice of a story as you would like to think. Or alternatively, the, you know, bureaucratic imperatives led to thing, information that was disparaging to one side being leaked, but then it was up to the public through the media to determine what was actually a firing offense. That seems like a pretty happy ending. Uh, I don't know. Though, again, it's just because... But, <laughs> like, but, but you're just a like, downer. I like how Matt... Well, no, I like how Matt framed it. I mean, we saw levels of trust in government plummet, obviously, oh, after yeah. Watergate, but like some of that may be because of how all of that proceeded and blah, blah, blah. I mean, like in the end, all... The, the outcome was terrible. And in fact, trust in government hasn't even really recovered from from that. Yeah, you're 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 right. I just want to give people something nice to end on. Enjoy your weekend, folks. The outcome was terrible. With that, thank you, Herman, for joining us. Uh, thanks, thanks to our producer, uh, P- Peter Leonard. Uh, check out check out the Weeds Facebook group, and uh, we will be we'll be back next week. We're gonna we're gonna think of something more more upbeat for the holidays. That's a big promise, Matt. That is a big promise. <laughs> Can you think of something more? It's going to be very up to you. <laughs> Christmas spectacular. <laughs>